Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Each week we talk to people who've either done research or they've done investigations about improving our jobs. All of the episodes are live on the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Actually, while you're online, while you've got a browser open, here's one for you. I put a new website live to promote the paperback release of The Joy of Work. And it's badbosshelpline.com and you can contact the Bad Boss Helpline share your experiences with bad bosses Uh, if we use your story we'll anonymously send you a copy of The Joy of Work to your bad boss and there's some cartoons already up there that have been brilliantly illustrated by a guy called Drivel Siv and uh, and I think you'll find them quite entertaining badbosshelpline.com take a look and share your story just while we're on, if you are New New York-based, maybe you are. I think it's unlikely, but if you are New York-based, I'm doing some promotion uh, for the forthcoming release of the US copy of my book, which is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Same book as Joy of Work, adapted with some wonderful American stories and removing some of the far more parochial East 17 references that you maybe won't understand. The book's coming out February 25th and I'm doing an event to promote it. You can find details of that at the podcast's Twitter, which you'll find by searching Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And so I'd love to see you there. Today's episode, I've been trying to get this interviewee for a long time. And it's one of those things that was made marginally easier when he had a new book that he wanted to talk talk about. So I was delighted that actually we were able to make this happen. Alain de Berton is a Swiss-born British philosopher and author. He lives in London. He's written lots of books, taking a sort of philosophy stance on love, on life, and occasionally on work. He's also the founder of the School of Life, and we'll discuss that. He explains all to me here. This is one of those conversations where, even though I'd read about four of his books beforehand in preparation, even on the tube going in, I had no idea where the discussion was going to go. turned out to be a sort of brilliant exploration on what work means to us, the role that education can play in preparing us for work, what the realities of the dramas of modern work look like, how bosses can model certain forms of behaviour in their workforce. Uh, we, We looked at sort of the icons of modern work, of how affects our identity, went everywhere. 
Maybe one for listening to as you walk somewhere or prepare a nice meal. Do uh, send me a photo of what what meal you make. Goes to a lot of interesting places. I was really thrilled with the opportunity of picking the brains of such an intellect. Here's my chat with Alain de Breton. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, uh, I wonder if, to kick off, you could you could introduce yourself. Yes, so my name is Alain de Botton, and I'm a writer and the founder and one of the um, executives of an organisation called the School of Life, which is um, something that's devoted to emotional education and teaching you all the stuff that um, you probably didn't pick up at school and that's probably ruining your life as an adult. What made you set that up? The fact my life was being ruined as an adult. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, I always try and do things that would heal me or could heal me. I'm my own first customer. Um, and I felt a, a kind of resource for mental well-being and personal development that was going to be specifically non-American in flavour. A lot of the self-help industry is coming out of the United States and it has a particular ideology around perfectionism and around the... Um, development of pure continual happiness because I don't think that's possible and because I think that is in itself the problem Um, one of the key beliefs of the school of life is uh, we are imperfect Um, it's the birth of compassion once you realize that about yourself and others it's the route to vulnerability um, to happiness joy and a more kind of modest and workable kind of fulfillment that gives you sort of a little bit of the flavor of the school of life it's a little bit different from other organizations out explain there to me what field. it is because it, is it a place where people can go and yeah. experience evening lectures or yeah. do, do people so got, do semesters there so it's got 10 physical hubs around the world in sort of major capitals and all sorts of places and most nights of the week there are classes there's also psychotherapy that's on offer and there's mostly shops and sort of social area on top of that we work with business Businesses, large corporations, small businesses dealing with their personnel issues right. and emotional. Do you go there? Do you, do you go to any of the lectures yourself? Yes. I mean, I had a hand in designing a lot okay. of stuff. I don't teach there right. daily, but we do a conference twice a year, which I lead. Um, and a lot of my time is spent generating new material and ideas for the School of Life. So we exist online. We've got a big YouTube channel. Um, we reach a lot of people that way. So it's a mixture of digital and physical interventions of all sorts. Okay, got it. And I'm intrigued. You've written two new books as part of this School of Life, yep. which are about work. And I, I, my question would be, why would anyone write about work? When you've written about love, you've mm. sold millions <laughs> of copies. And, and I think when we sort of go into bookshops, we see love as this universal thing that everyone, there's no shame in reading a book about love. I suspect your books about work must sell a tiny fraction of that, won't find the same placing in bookstores. Why, why would you choose to write about work? Yeah, well, remember Freud's famous definition of um, fulfilment, two ingredients, love and work. You're right that we tend to think and write a lot less about work it's got less glamour but in terms of its importance to our lives it's just as important and it's got many of the same complexities in both love and work we're looking for recognition we're looking to be understood we're looking to make a difference and impact on others and there's a lot of the same causes of frustration Uh, failures to communicate failures to work well with another person because we're not on the same page, etc., etc. So it's intellectually very fascinating. And as for your commercial question, well, I don't look at everything I do through that commercial Absolutely. lens. <laughs> Absolutely. You say something in um, in The Course of Love where you talk about, and I'm not going to remotely get it right, but you talk about how 
our partner is the person most capable in the world of destroying us. Something like that. There's a yeah. mother-in-law yeah. appraising her future son-in-law. Yeah. And it strikes me works that as well to some extent, you know, probably less vividly. But work can create a real sense of a, a pride of who we are. It can create our identity in the world. And it also can be the destruction of us in, in a small way. Yes. I mean, look, if you look at it ideally, what would we want work ideally to be? I think that work should be two things. First of all, it should be about service to other people. I think there is no greater joy than to be able to serve somebody else. And often the concept of serving is seen as insulting. It's like, oh, someone wants to, you know, me to serve them. But but it's it's the great joy. And um, all, all good work, all noble work is service, one human serving others. Um, and But of course, there's something else. You need to be able to locate that kind of service, which is most attuned to um, your own distinctive character. We want to see ourselves and the most precious bits of ourselves in our work. And that's why there's no one kind of satisfactory work, no one kind of satisfactory service. Because for some people, good service will mean making bread for people. For others, it will mean um, delivering ideas for people. Uh, for others, it will be making furniture, whatever it may be. But we're all the time trying to externalise what's precious in ourselves, stabilise it in some form. Because the other thing, the other ambition behind work is to create something that endures, that is a little bit more solid than we are ourselves as very vulnerable flesh and blood creatures. And um, so the concept of impacting on others in a positive way, in a way that goes slightly above and beyond our own physical fragility and sort of temporary nature. These are some of the ideals of work. But of course, you know, in the humdrum reality of our lives, it's very hard to manage to marry the right job. It's hard to marry the right person, and it's perhaps even harder to marry the right job. You don't know what you want, you don't know who you are. I mean, the first question that satisfactory work asks you to confront is, who am I? Because only on the basis of understanding your talents, proclivities, interests, do you have any chance of knowing where you want to make an impact on, on, on others? And that can take an awfully long time. The education system is hopelessly geared. It doesn't help us to acquire that knowledge. Most careers don't allow you to nibble and taste. They force you to commit. And once you've started down a track that may not be right for you, you know, heaven forbid, because you may be living in an expensive part of town, you may have accrued obligations to others, there may be children. And how do you reverse out of that in order to try and find a more authentic and fulfilling job. So it's it's heartbreaking, literally, how many people have things to contribute to humanity that they intimate late at night or on a Sunday late afternoon. They know that there's something they should be doing, but they lack the wherewithal, the courage, the know-how to extract this precious ore and refine the golden nugget of which they're capable. Tell me, do you think that the start point of that is entirely healthy all the time? So you're saying there that we get, we see ourselves in our work, the, the way you described it, that we get some of our identity from satisfaction, from doing our jobs well. Do you think that's historically always been the case? Mm. And is it a good place for us to be, for us to see ourselves as a reflection, the shadow cast by our work, rather than seeing that our work is somehow an enabler of our identity that we forge elsewhere? Mm. 
Look, you're right to put it in a historical context. Obviously, for most of human history, that's not how work's been seen. Work has been seen as a drudgery, as something utterly unrelated from what's precious about us. And that had, I suppose, in certain ways, um, a liberating capacity, just as the idea that you shouldn't be loving your partner. You know, it's very modern, the idea that you should be in love with your husband or wife. For most of history, you shouldn't be in love with your husband or wife. You should just tolerably get on well with them and maybe have love affairs on the side or gain your fulfilment elsewhere in other things um, or not be fulfilled at all. That sounds pretty harsh to us, but an analogous process went on around work that there too the notion that you should love your work was not operative for most people it was just a route to an income and there was i suppose a certain liberation to that um you didn't ask yourself uh, every minute of every day you know is this fulfilling my deeper aspirations you just got on with it um so look we've built a more ambitious world one way to go is to dismantle that world and return to an earlier world which had a certain freedom from anxiety in those areas because of a lack of ambition. Uh, realistically, I think that's not really a route open to us. I think we have to have the intelligence of our ambition and put in place tools and strategies that will more reliably help us to bring about the ambitions that we have. In the world of work, that means getting much more intelligent about career guidance, about the process by which people understand themselves and find their way into a job. This is a lot of what the School of Life does. A lot of our work is helping people to find work that's right for them. And, and that's a process of self-knowledge. In the area of love, that means helping people to understand who they are, what their romantic type is, what the likely obstacles will be to successful unions, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think uh, let's keep the ambitions we have, but let's build the scaffolding we are going to need to get up to the top of those ambitions. Okay, so is, is it about optimising where we are and and going from there? I guess one of the things I take issue with sometimes is the idea that we have a calling, we have a professional calling that if if we feel the, the absence of that, somehow we're an inferior individual. And I suspect for most people, they don't have a calling, they don't have something that they've, they've always regarded as their destination. Uh, maybe that's to your point about education needs to be different as well? You're right that there's a sort of um, a myth of the calling, which is unhelpful. It suggests that we will literally be called to a certain profession, or if not, then we have no particular role in society. Um, I think that's a very misleading story. Most of us don't have a calling, but we do have certain things that will answer to very deep needs within us. It's just that those... Um, that that identity is much vaguer and we're going to have to spend a lot of time digging it out from all sorts of unhelpful notions or confusions or or, or whatever i sincerely believe that there are that there is a job for everybody that there is a service for everybody that is going to work really well for them i'm not saying that's going to be a very you know outwardly lucrative or prestigious one it could be a relatively simple one it doesn't really matter but the point is there is something that's going to excite everyone and i think a lot of us are like children at the beginning of the summer holidays we're a bit bored we haven't found our way to the games that are going to satisfy us and work should be a game in other words it should share with childhood play a sense of spontaneous Excitement, And we know from watching children play that children's games don't have to be, you know, enormously sophisticated to be very interesting. 
Um, and we're like that as adults. Um, so I'm not arguing for everyone being an MIT research scientist and finding their you know, specific PhD topic. Not at all. Um, it doesn't have to be intellectually taxing or, or artistically very skilled. Um, but I think that there is a marriage possible for, for everyone that will bring um, satisfaction and indeed a bad marriage for everyone that will frustrate and humiliate. So you've written these two books, How to Get On With Your Colleagues and How to Think More Effectively. And the, the first one is sort of v- filled with the dramas and the and the, the personality issues that maybe all of us are presented with in the modern workforce. You talk about paranoia and cynicism and immaturity. Do, do you want to explain? Yes, I'll explain a little bit. Um, so, look, it struck me that um, having hung around offices... Um, there's a lot of gossip. There's a lot of people. When you say hung around offices, so so you, well, my when, my own. Okay, um, okay. So, so you go to work on a daily basis. You go into. I I don't go in every day, but I go in very yeah, regularly. Yeah. And you know, we're in London. We're a sixty-person team, okay. so it's now quite large. And I've hung around other people's offices at other points in life. I was in television doing various things. So, so I know how it works. I'm struck by the level of cynicism often that accrues at work. Um, management don't know very much, they're stupid, they're annoying, uh, bosses are invariably dumb and narcissistic and, you know, etc. And depending on where you are, you know, if you're in management, then people below you are idiots and lazy, etc. So there's an awful lot in private of bad-mouthing and just of sort of despair, really, about other human beings. And I understand that and I know how you can get into that place, but it's not very fruitful. And it strikes me that behind the surface gossip that people have, so-and-so's mean, so-and-so's lazy, etc. And there are often what you could call with a psychological hat, neuroses, hang-ups, psychological warps that are actually intellectually very interesting. So the first thing you can do instead of just moaning is to get interested. You know, all your colleagues are mad. How are they mad? What's actually going on? Um, You know, at the School of Life, and me personally, I'm very interested in psychotherapy as a tool for understanding how humans have got to be the way they are now. This is not generally something that's wheeled out in the workplace. It's wheeled out more in personal life, oddly. You know, if you go on some dates and people will say, oh, I went out with this mad Mm, person. People watching, yeah, that's it. People will more readily talk about psychological complexity that's got to do with childhood, etc. It doesn't so much happen at work, though, of course, it's very operative. So, in a way, this book is an attempt to kind of be a little bit of a, a, a psychotherapy of the office and to look out for some of the key types, because I think there are personality types. In other words, there are neurotic symptoms that occur again and again, and they have a history. And once you've put a, a needle on them or a flag on them, they're easier to identify, you feel less lonely with them. And ideally, if you're the manager of an office or if you're involved in office life, this should give you a tool to try and sort this out. Now, you could say, how on earth are you going to you know, address these tricky psychological dynamics in the professional, I use that word in inverted commas, the professional um, arena of the workplace? How can you bring up childhood dynamics? And that's a very good question. My sense is that the way in which you should do it is to change the underlying atmosphere in offices. So you can't do it person by person. But if you announce, I I often think, this is something we recommend the bosses do at the School of Life, you have to have an overall sense that everybody in an office is a bit crazy and a bit fragile and we're all mad. That relaxes everybody, particularly if that message comes from the top. Because 
you know, you may think your boss is mad, but he or she has to say that. So the blanket rule under which we should all go to work is we're all mad people here. That should be done with a bit of humour and a confession of vulnerability that's generous towards ourselves and other people. It's like, we're trying to do a difficult job here, but we're human. That means we're incredibly complicated machines. We've got drives that we don't quite understand. We've got fears that are very unhelpful. We've got impulses that have no place in a, in a civilised office. But let's get that on the table and work with it rather than either deny it's there or take short-term punitive measures when the worst bubbles to the surface. So let's have an emotionally intelligent workplace which starts with an admission of the complexity of the emotions which we're bringing to the table every day that we walk through the door. And then let's start to look at some of the dynamics. So you mentioned you know, defensiveness. I mean, defensiveness is an enormous one. It's, you know, it's a very interesting one. You will have met people like this. Your listeners will have met people like this. Perhaps we're all a bit like this at points, which is that workplace uh, can function without a degree of criticism. It's, it's in the nature of, of work, either if you're doing it on your own or you're doing it with a group of people, that you'll do something and then you will have to edit, remove, censor, break something up or criticise it. It's, it's in the nature of all human activity. I mean, as a writer, right, you, you put some words, you write 20 words and six are out of place. You've got to get rid of them. Same thing happens on a larger scale in an office. You write a report, half of it's rubbish, you've got to start again, etc. To err is human and therefore to criticise is an essential part of a kind of good organisation or workflow. But my goodness, there are problems around it because you tell somebody... I like the report, but look, paragraph three, I think you need to rethink it in a certain way. And then the person looks at you and goes, oh, do you? Okay, I see. And you know you've got a problem on your hands. You've got an offended person on your hands. Or to a group of people, you say, guys, that, that bit of work what wasn't great, was it? It's like, I think we can do better. And they go, well, we're up against a lot of challenges, you know. It's not easy doing our job. And you think, oh, dear, got a bit of defensiveness there. So defensiveness, with a big capital D, is a major problem in the workforce. And of and course, it, sometimes it, we're on the receiving end. Somebody goes, I liked it, but it's not perfect. And you think, you're evil, you're hurting me, etc. What we need to do is to stand back and go, OK, what's, what's actually being said and what am I hearing? And there's a fascinating disjuncture. Normally the defensive response is one where we haven't really heard what the other person said to us. The other person has said something like, I'd like you to try and redo paragraph three. We've heard, I don't think you quite deserve to exist. You are a wretch. I know about you. I know everything about you. You're miserable. You don't deserve your place on this planet. That's not what actually has been said, but we've heard that. Now, why have we heard that? A lot of us, because we have voices inside our heads that predate any office we've ever been into. Some of those voices are very benevolent and others are very hard. And those voices tell us things like, you're no good, you'll never get there, etc. And if those voices are particularly loud inside our own heads, and if those voices have come from people who've had a very large role to play in our lives, a parent, a sibling, most often a parent, then those voices are reactivated or given new amplitude by the voices we hear in the workplace. So it may not be our father telling us that paragraph three is wrong, but our unconscious isn't very good at distinguishing between our father and our boss. We tend to blur people. You know this because in dreams, people are blurred. You know how it is when you have a dream and it's your dad and it's your boss in the dream. And you know that in your dream. 
And when we wake up in the morning, go, oh, it's really weird. I had a sort of dream about a composite character that was both my aunt and somebody that I know met on holiday or whatever. So this happens in the... That's how the unconscious works. It blurs personalities. There are archetypes. The archetype is the, the disapproving male. You know, and so you walk into an office and you've got a disapproving male and you can't disentangle. And then what happens is that you respond to that character as a child. And that sounds odd. You're not literally back in, you know, short trousers, but in the essence of your response, just as you've heard a voice as though it's a voice from childhood, so you respond to it like a child. And how do children respond? Well, in two ways. They either get furious, too angry, or they get in a sulk. In other words, they don't explain what's wrong. They simply say, nothing's wrong, and then everything's wrong, but it's bottled up. What does the adult do? The adult acknowledges their feeling, they explain, and they take on board a criticism without it destroying them. So, so your, your suggestion that somehow collectively we try to school our teams in understanding these things, because it seems... It seems a sophisticated journey to take a team on, that we're going to recognise that we've all got father issues and we've all got issues about criticism and we're going to try and create a a psychologically enlightened team that's Mm. going to be welcoming to these things. Is it a collective journey that a boss should take a team on or is this just like a book that someone should read to help diagnose and navigate the workplace that Um, they're in? The the book is for everybody and I think everybody can get something out of it. But in terms of your question about how does one create this, I think it is people at the top you know it's people who are in charge of offices now at the call of life you know we, we often i go in and have conversations with people you know big bosses of companies and the first thought they always come out with particularly men is hang on a minute you don't understand the pressures on mm-hmm. me this 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 is often a gender thing. this is girl stuff you know this is some um, fancy stuff this is stuff for the weekend this is about you know i don't know it's a luxury and we always say to them okay how much are you spending on computers um what's your it support budget how much are you spending on supporting your staff? Compare the two. What's more important? What costs you more? The biggest expenditure of any any company, particularly in you know a capital city like London where we're sitting, unless you've got a very heavy plant investment, is people. You know, people are the expensive stuff, and we treat people as though they're machines that never break down. Of course, they do. They jump off buildings in extremists. They get very unhappy. We're living in a psychological age where if a workforce is not happy. It's a problem, it's a human problem, and it's a financial problem. Management, psychological management, is not some kind of luxury. It is a necessity in the era which we're living in, which is psychological capitalism. In other words, a stage of capitalism where money is generated through the efficient use of the human psyche rather than through muscle power. And so it's not a luxury. Um, There are things you can do. And if it comes from the top, you can reorganise, you can make an intervention which fundamentally changes how teams work together. You've worked with teams, you know how it is. As a culture, we're slowly getting there. We now have something called the away day. Most away days are a bit of a disaster, but they're interesting enough in that they're trying to reveal your co-workers as humans. And the reason is that you know that in order to get certain kind of work done, the more you can see your fellow humans as you know, in the round, the more you'll be able to deploy resources of compassion, uh, sympathy, understanding. You know, it's very helpful if during your away day you discover that your colleague's getting divorced. That's a very vital piece of information that you need to know when you're going to be doing some reports with them. All of this kind of stuff is not a luxury. It's, it's part of working effectively. <laughs> 
More from my discussion with Alain de Breton after this. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now back to Alain de Breton. One thing you raised there, talk about what American firms would call off-sites or, or UK firms would call away days. These moments, these pauses where we actually, well, we might have this notion that this is going to be the moment where we ideate, where we create a strategy, where we do something that's away from the, the, the day-to-day demands upon us. Actually, it's, it seems like it's one of these rare moments that we interact with each other as human beings. We connect, we forge, sync with each other. And I just wonder, th- through the two books, you sort of describe these scenarios where there's an absence of technology and I wonder if one of the things that determines the experience of work for so many people now is this continuous partial attention that technology imposes upon all of us. We're only ever four or five steps away from sitting back at our desk trying to answer an email and then we're, we're heading off to a meeting. And that continuous partial attention means that we don't have time to forge these empathetic connections with other people around us. And so as a consequence of that, some of the already dysfunctional relationships we've got with people around us they're not fully formed. They're not. F- the conflict isn't fully realised. It isn't spent. And you don't really talk about technology. What role do you think technology plays in all of these things? Well, look, I think that one of the things that technology does is to raise really big questions around what it means to be working well and effectively. Because ostensibly, technology is in the workplace in order to help us to do our jobs more successfully. But we also know, paradoxically, that it's getting in the way of certain other kinds of work. We know this from our personal lives and we know this from our you know, office lives, that, um, that there are ways of um, living around technology which far from helping you to be more productive actually slow down your productivity. Technology is a productivity tool and yet, oddly, it's hampering productivity. So this is a really big uh, thing. Now, w- one of the books, second book, is about thinking, Um, And it's about creative thinking and rich thinking and good thinking. Now, 
all organisations depend ultimately on their workforce doing, at least portions of their workforce, doing the richer, higher level kind of thinking. The thinking where we're thinking, where are we going? Why are we doing this? Um, could we do it better in the deeper sense? Why are we here? What are we trying to achieve? Organisations can't get very far unless people in them are regularly stepping back and asking those sort of questions. Pretty much everybody should be doing that kind of um, thinking. And we don't know how it works. One of the odd things about thinking is that it tends to happen when we're trying not to do it. Um, so we've all had the experience of showers being a particularly good place in which thoughts emerge. I and mean, this is very perplexing. I mean, we build these offices, we ask people to come and sit in them, and yet, oddly, your shower might be more effective than your desk. I mean, it's very odd. We also know that walking is particularly good. We also know that working in a cafe might be quite good. Now, the people who looked at this, uh, interestingly, in the Middle Ages were monks and nuns. When they built monasteries, um, many monasteries have got covered colonnades at the centre of them, often a fountain, where monks would walk around, either alone or in pairs, and think. So they'd walk around the colonnade, They'd be both sort of indoor and outdoor, a bit of fresh air, uh, but sheltered from the intensities of the sun and the sound of a fountain. Sound of water is very good for thinking. And they had good thoughts. Now, this was a, you know, this cost a lot, cost a lot to build a, a nice covered colonnade. But they made that investment because they thought we're living in a machine for thinking. They happen to be thinking about God. Not many modern organisations are doing that. However, they're thinking about other things that are equally complicated. Uh, perhaps not quite, but, you know, it's quite complicated and, and quite important. And so let's give ourselves the tools and the infrastructure required to think, even if that infrastructure looks really different from what we think it should look. Now, when I say, well, why is the shower a good place? Why is a train a good place to think? I think that rich thinking and good thinking often threatens to upset the status quo, both in ourselves and within an organisation. When we start thinking deeply about ourselves and, and our companies and our commitments, etc., um, we may start to stumble upon some pretty surprising insights. Maybe we've got to get divorced. Maybe we've got to leave a job. Maybe we've got to shut a division down. Maybe we've got to reverse out of a major investment. Um, maybe we've got to scrub the whole of chapter five. Maybe we should be writing a different book. Maybe the film should end with a completely different thing. And one side of us thinking, oh my goodness, really? I don't want that to be true. So, you know, the mind is a lazy organism. It responds to fear and immediate terror. It's quite bad at sort of apprehending the more diffuse fears that are associated with wasting your life. It's like if you're wasting your life, it's a really big deal, but it happens quite slowly. Are you wasting your life on Monday? Oh, well, a little bit, but not really. So there's not much of an impulse to change anything on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, and so it goes. So there's a way in which, uh, you know, we we're talking before coming on an air about climate change, you know, slow problems have a habit of not panicking us, even though the problem may be the greatest problem that's facing us. So it's very hard for us to think effectively around these larger problems. And there's anxiety associated with doing so. Now, what do we do to curb that anxiety? One of the things we can do is to put ourselves in an environment where we are not alone with the triggering thoughts, where we are less likely to be less sort of bereft with them, because there's something else around. 
We're next to a stream watching water flow by. We're in a cafe and lots of people around. We're on a train and if we want to leave a thought that's become too intense, we can redirect our attention for just as long as it takes to us to calm down to the sight of some moving trees outside. So these are all ways of sort of dampening and helping the mind over its most intense moments of panic and then we can return to the thought um, a few moments later and assemble the next bit. The other thing to bear in mind about thinking is that though the fruits of thinking tend to be delivered in one burst, a book, a film, an object, an organisation, these things like seem unitary, but almost always, and we often forget this when we're in the role of producers, they were assembled bit by bit over a long time. I mean, you literally get this in a book. If you pick up a book, you think, oh, it's 300 pages and it'll take me three hours to read, but it was assembled over months and, and assembled completely backwards, maybe, or in fragments. Or, you know, that one idea struck the guy in a supermarket, the other idea came in the middle of the night in a forest, the other idea was, you know, came three weeks before the deadline, etc. And yet it's all been brushed up and assembled, etc. And Large corporations making stuff and doing stuff are often like that as well. That it, what looks like a, a seamless service to the end user um, may have been the result of all sorts of really backward and you know, odd bits of rejigging behind the scenes. We've got to allow for that. We've got to have flexible, you know, we talked about flexible working. They mean you know, all sorts of things, but, but we've got to have flexible thinking, flexible assembly. We've got to allow ideas to come from lots of weird places at weird times of day and night and to have a pretty odd flavour at the beginning, which may rather panic the assembled, settled order of things. One of the things that strikes me when we were talking earlier, we were talking about our calling and mm. and sort of the having something that we feel that we, we need to focus on. Having better thinking seems to be one of the areas that benefits from us having multiple interests, personal pastimes, hobbies, um, distractions. The, that sort of plurality of stimulus seems to actually create better ideas it creates more divergent but more interesting ideas you know there's fewer people playing musical instruments there's fewer people who are painters in their spare time does that act in service of of cutting down the amount of thinking and creativity we have so i think you know we all want to be effective and use our time well and so there can be a narrowing rather like in agriculture where you're you know you become a bit of a monoculture You, you you know you're just trying to raise one kind of crop We all know that there's lots of benefit in cross-fertilisation. The mind is very good at pattern recognition, our minds. And we're very good at analogical thinking, where we make an analogy drawn from one place that works in another. And one of the good things about having diverse interests, whatever field you're in, is that um, there are all sorts of fascinating correspondences between areas and realms. So, you know, maybe during the week... You're working in advertising, but actually on the weekend, you're very interested in, you know, 14th century Florentine painting. Now, you might think, oh, what, you know, two got absolutely nothing in common. But you might realise um, that actually, you know, you're in a chapel in Florence um, on a weekend and it looks like you're not doing anything that could anyway be relevant to work. And yet an idea strikes you because you realise that, you know, what Giotto's doing on the wall has interesting correspondences with something you were talking to a client about in the middle of last week and that you could put to use, you know, in another area. So there are, there are fascinating correspondences between different realms, between engineering and literature, between the surface of Mars and the surface of 
um, a painting between realms of natural history and realms of uh, politics. There are there are correspondences, differences as well, but correspondences. And by being, by having a well-stocked mind, you can build fascinating bridges um, and come to pretty surprising conclusions. So that's really an argument for getting interested in stuff, even though you're not necessarily sure how it relates to your primary occupation, because you might not know for a long, long while, and then suddenly it'll, you know, a connection will be made because the mind is unconsciously always looking for patterns. So you don't know what those exact patterns are going to be. But if you if you have a well-stocked mind, you have a, a, a richer possibility of building those patterns. You talked earlier about the importance of sort of managers setting the tone for things. I wonder how far having icons that extend beyond our immediate area goes. So how important are the, the figurehead business people or... or the inventors, you know, I, I wonder the icons that we see when we think about career, when when someone who's 15, 16, 17 now is going through the stage where they're contemplating what on earth their future has for them. Are, are these icons, Elon Musk springs to mind, probably 10 years ago in the US, Donald Trump would have been. My, my dad constantly used to say to me, is your work like The Apprentice, meaning sort of the, the Sir Alan Sugar version rather than... But, but these icons... Do they play a part in how we think about the way that work is going to impact us and our jobs are going to impact us? So I think that we are, of course, guided by role models. The more we can have a sort of rich and fascinating range of role models, the better things can be. And I think, you know, sometimes um, talking to young people entering the workforce, it's a bit dispiriting how it's always the same sort of five people. And you think, hang on, guys, you know, there are a lot of other weird and wonderful people. I mean, they're not necessarily a straightforward business icon, but why not look back to some historical figures like, you know, Lao Tzu or Montaigne or, um, you know, Napoleon or uh, Alexander the Great or Aristotle or any of these people who, it's not like you literally need to become like them, but maybe there's something about the scale of their ambition or the diversity of their talents or their approach to certain problems that you can draw upon uh, and, and, and be slightly unfamiliar. So I think modern business culture does tend to be relatively ahistorical, um, particularly in America, particularly on the West Coast, because we think, well, if we're trying to do something with new technology, it surely doesn't have much relevance with what's happened before. But, you know, you worked at Twitter. The short-form message reached an apogee in 17th century France when people would gather in salons to write aphorisms. Someone like La Rochefoucauld, you know, that there were sort of competitions to distill complex arguments in, you know, a certain number of characters. And the notion was that it was a, a, a discipline that you should feel excited by to compress. This wasn't an impoverishment. It was a demonstration of your kind of psychological complexity and acuity that you'd be able to do this. Or think of, you know, medieval Japan when uh, the notion of the haiku comes along. And again, the notion is that you sum up the whole world in three sentences um, and see the whole, the totality of existence in three sentences. So just knowing that when you're hanging around Twitter or something, it's first of all, it might might be just intriguing. It might lend a certain nobility to the the, the thing that you're doing, but it might also you might also think, oh, that's uh, you know that's interesting. You know, I've had the pleasure of working with CEOs um, uh, sometimes on the West Coast and having really interesting conversations where I'd sort of bring up 
something from the past and open up a possibility that hadn't really seemed kind of relevant. And what's nice is that, you know, generally they're quite open. They're like, oh, okay, so we could we could raid this. So history and culture is a toolbox and we can raid it in the present and we should raid it. We're taught history very badly at school. We're taught it for its own sake, as though, I don't know, as though we really have a responsibility to the 17th century to understand it for on its own terms. Nonsense. We've got all this past stuff so that we can steal from it and put it to work in the present. So that, you know, if you're interested in climate change, you should really be interested in how religions changed consciousness. Because in order to address climate change, we're going to need to change consciousness. And the most successful organisations that have ever changed consciousness are the large world religions. So how did they do this? If you're only working on a media-based model, uh, then you're, the tools by which you're trying to understand how uh, humanity changes its mind will be relatively limited. So open you know, the shutter on the full range of human experience and you'll, you know, you'll pick up odd stuff and useful stuff. You mentioned using history there. Do you want to go through some of these other techniques of mm. these ideation techniques, these creation techniques that you've, you've thought about? Yeah. Because um, they're all sort of provocations. They're yeah. all different lenses, aren't they? Yes, they're provocations. I mean, one thing is what we call idiot thinking. It's often struck me that some of the most interesting ideas are prefaced by somebody going, I know this idea is a bit stupid. I know this will sound a bit stupid. I mean, you know that someone's about to say something very interesting when they say, I know this will sound stupid. Uh, We somehow cloak our deepest insights in shame and we think they are stupid. What we really mean is this is going to sound very unfamiliar. Uh, it may not work, but that's not the point. The point is that we're, we tend to be ashamed. So we need a culture where people will be encouraged to bring up idiot ideas. You know, it's like if you're running an organisation, have Idiot Friday, where you've got to bring to the table some ideas that will sound totally stupid, but dot, dot, dot. I bet some of those ideas will be some of the best ideas that will ever come to the company. So spurring that on, you know, utopian thinking, it's often equated with well, that's just pie in the sky. Sometimes we have to put aside practical concerns. It's very useful to say to somebody, if money was not holding you back, and if ridicule and the fear of ridicule was not holding you back, what would you do next? Right. It's a very useful thought exercise. Because sometimes people come out with, you know, people people say things like, I've got no idea what to do, I don't know what to do next. And you go, oh, poor you, and, you know, scratch your heads, etc., etc. If you say to them, okay, don't worry about money, and don't worry about ridicule. What would you do next? And out come the ideas, hmm. tumbling out. Brilliant ideas, fascinating ideas. Now, some of them really might be absolutely impossible forever, but I bet they won't all be. So very often we have, you know, our fear of ridicule and our fear of poverty stifles so many good ideas. We're living in a rich world. We're living in a world where actually we don't need to worry what the neighbour thinks because it's a broad world. If you don't like the neighbours cackle, move away. The fields are broad. You know, we've got, we've got enough space. We've still got this kind of poverty-based, clan-based thinking of like, there's not enough money and there's not enough space between me and the horrible neighbour. And this holds us back. You know, that's just one... You know, it's another. Kind it's interesting of thing. you say that. We used to, um, when it used to come to our marketing, practically in my, in the job that I did, uh, we used to say, right, let's. The plan should start with if money was no object, and then work back from there. Because broadly, once you've come up with a good idea, you can make it work, and exactly. and you can scale it back. It's it's interesting. Therefore, you've talked about education a couple of times, and I wonder what your thinking is with regard to education. Either 
education in work, so systematizing、mm. some of these things, so they don't feel like an accident of our memory when we when we remember them, or whether teaching these things to kids. What are your thoughts about education, either、mm. vocationally or or in school? Look, I wouldn't have started up the School of Life if I thought everything was well in education. It's obviously not.、Um, first of all, I believe in lifelong learning in in the deepest sense. I mean, the notion that education should stop at eighteen or twenty one or whatever it is is is, is mad. We constantly need to learn, so we need ongoing education. We also need to realise that we're all in a very Levels of education in different areas. So there's no such thing as a well-educated person. There's a well-educated person in an area, and if we all really took our correct seats, you know, you might be sitting with a group of eight-year-olds when it comes to anger management, but a group of 120-year-old when it comes to you know forward planning or whatever it, it is. You know, so we're all a fascinating blend of the mature and the immature,、um, and、uh, we need to have a kind of learning that doesn't humiliate us in that area. That's completely. Fine, you know one of the one of the things that often holds us back is that we don't acknowledge how much of the childhood self exists within the adult, and so we're embarrassed and ashamed at the emergence of more primitive or infantile patterns of thought and、uh, problems, but also joys and insights,、um, and we don't integrate. So we need to kind of make our peace with the fact that an adult is, you know, like a Russian doll, has got. A child self in there, and education needs to factor that in.、Um, and、uh, so, I believe that yes, we need to change government-mandated、um, uh, education. I don't have long enough left in my life and enough energy to try and battle with government. I mean, I think it's a fantastic project, and if you're really committed, enthusiastic, twenty-one-year-old, and that's where you want to go. Go for it,、um, but it's a lifetime struggle. I mean, you should do nothing else other than fight the governments、uh, and their, you know, very peculiar ideas of what kids should learn. That's obviously a really great project. I've chosen to go round government and appeal directly to consumers. That's why you know YouTube is so important to me. YouTube is the world's foremost digital education medium. It's got a lot of terrible stuff on it, but it's got some great stuff on it. It's democratic. It's free.、Um, you know, long may it continue in that form. Um, uh, so I believe in that.、Um, I believe that kids need to learn, you know, not the names of philosophers generally.、Um, one of the things they need to learn about is love.、Uh, a kid needs love. Kid is vitally sustained by an experience of love. We were talking about defensiveness. Many of the patterns that crop up in workplaces and that make people frightened workers, unimaginative thinkers. Um, cowed human beings. If you trace it right back, it's all a lack of love.、Mm. Um, think of the courage that you need to be a bold thinker. Where does courage come from? I think that if you scratch the surface of any courageous person, there's somebody who once gave somebody encouragement and loved them. Maybe that love didn't go on forever. Maybe there was bad stuff as well. But if you have courage, probably someone loved you. At some formative stage, and you owe that person more than you owe, you know, a fancy university for teaching you something that then enabled you to to carry on. Also, soothing. You know, let's not forget that one of the key things that parents do to children is soothe them when the world seems unbelievably chaotic and overwhelming. The kid will be picked up by a parent and given a hug. Something very important is going on there. We can't take on the full complexity and. Terror of the world at all times. We need moments where we are held and the panic subsides, and then we're ready to go back out there. 
we need to do that. We need somebody else to do that for us. That's education as well. That's an educative process. And then we need to learn to do that to ourselves. That's also part of education. So, so yes, I believe in education, but it's not just learning right. Shakespeare's birthday. And so you, you started to sort of end us now, but you started off saying that one of the reasons why you created the School of Life is because this American philosophy of uh, perfectionism and, and optimising everything was, was unreasonable. Tell me, as you're looking then at work, as, as you've, you've got this moment looking at work, what do you think the perfect outcome for work can be? Can work make us happy or should it just about set about making us fulfilled? Or is it about trying to just navigate these complexities so there's less anxiety in the way that we go through what is inevitably going to be difficult at times, demanding at times? What's your final simplistic take on that? I think that work is satisfying when we feel that we've created or been involved with something that is better, and we can I put that in inverted commas, but in some ways loosely better than we manage to be in our daily life left to our own devices. So, you know, the carpenter should create a chair that is firmer, more noble, more dignified, more rational than that carpenter manages to be hanging around at home. The writer manages to create a work that is more coherent, more purposeful than their mind manages to be day to day. But this strikes me as really noble. For a lot of people, work is increasingly someone who's worked out a way to measure this. And, you know, like most vividly the Uber score. But work for a lot of people is their annual appraisal, their annual performance review. Someone has, a cynical person has come along and said, we can do the equivalent of an American grade index on this. We can give a score. And so the nobility that you're talking about there, that I think we can feel deeply enriching from um cynically has sort of been shifted and someone's saying yeah you've got a a seven out of ten look don't get me wrong there's so much to be cynical about in the world of work there's so many companies that are doing substandard work and so many organizations that are killing the spirit of those who work there etc and these are real problems and we need to get to grips with them however however i'm optimistic in this realm ultimately people want to buy and sell each other quality things we don't want to be living in an economy where people are trashing and deceiving each other by making stuff that isn't enriching the customer even though there's a temptation to cut corners and to abuse people and etc ultimately there's something very deep within us that rewards quality and quality work and we all we all know what that is we all know what cutting a corner means and we all know what quality work and i think the companies that are most respected and the work that's most fulfilling is honest work. And there's always been such a thing as honest work. And there have always been such a thing as honest workers and honest companies. And there still are. And honest work is simply work that accurately identifies the need of other human beings and delivers products and services that nobly fulfil other people. That's service. That's good work. Fantastic. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me, Alan. Thank you so much. I've linked to those books in the show notes and I really enjoyed that discussion. So thank you to to Alan for that. There's one or two more episodes coming before I start a new series of called Fix Your Work, which is going to be sort of slightly more instructive than I've done previously. It's going to go in specific detail to what work culture looks like, what company culture looks like, and lessons we can take. So I think there's one, but maybe two episodes before that happens. I'm very much looking forward to that. As ever, I look forward to your emails and tweets. Do get in touch. Like I say, if you are interested in coming along to my New York event, 
go to our Twitter. I've been Bruce Taisley. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.